Well, I was well into the sermon, writing the sermon. I didn't realize I told you some of the story in the beginning before, but there's repeating, so there it is. February 13th, 1847, in a village on the outskirts of Bologna, Italy, Clelia Barbieri was born to a poor family. Her father died when she was only eight, so she went to work, spinning and weaving hemp in order to help support the family. This is an eight-year-old girl. In spite of her hard labor at the loom, she paid little or no attention to the world, preferring instead to pray or think or speak about the things of God. She made her first Holy Communion at the age of 11. It's also the occasion for her first mystical experience. The website of the Vatican summarizes the experience. It says, Clelia underwent anguish and suffering for the sins that crucified Christ and made our lady so sorrowful. And she was filled with exceptional contrition and repentance for her own sins and those of the whole world. This is an 11-year-old girl. She became focused on a life of prayer and good works, and the crucifix and Our Lady of Sorrows became a focus and inspiration for her. When she's still 20, almost 21, she founded a congregation, the Sister Minims of the Sorrowful Mother. They were devoted to teaching catechism, to sewing, caring for the sick, and providing charitable assistance to anyone in need. Uh, in fact, Clelia Barbieri is actually the youngest founder of a religious congregation in the history of the church. July 13, 1870, only two years after Clelia founded the order, she died of tuberculosis. While she lay there dying, she told the sister at her bedside, I'm leaving, but I'll never abandon you. I'm going to heaven, and all those who die in our community will enjoy eternal life. Now, one year later, to the very day, on July 13, 1871, as the sisters and her little community were in the chapel singing the divine office, a most remarkable event occurred. Now, before we get into that event, let's make sure that all the young people here know what the divine office is. What does it mean when we say the sisters were in chapel singing the divine office? Well, a lot of people don't realize that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is not the only official sacrifice that the Church offers up to God. The church also offers up the divine office, which is the sacrifice of praise. Divine office is a whole series of prayers and hymns, scripture readings, readings and, and sermons from the church fathers, especially psalms. And they're offered up, they're prayed every day by priests, brothers, and nuns. Okay, To give you some idea, this is a breviary. There's two to cover the year in this, in this kind of a set, and it contains a divine office. In the course of a week, we'll go through all 150 psalms. That's one of the things we pray in the course of a week, all 150 psalms, other prayers, hymns, spiritual readings. Today, for example, the scriptural readings were from Isaiah, the prophet, and there was a sermon by the father, Saint, Pope St. Gregory the Great, so there was a sermon by him. Anyway, when we pray the divine office, when we offer the sacrifice of praise of, to God, when we do that, we're praying in the name of the church. Well, so what? That means that God has promised he'll listen to us. So it's not depending on the virtue of the particular person who has this duty. It doesn't depend on my virtue at all. If I pray the divine office, when you say, Father, will you pray for me? I put that intention in the divine office. God has to listen to it. It doesn't matter on what, you know, how holy I am. How holy I am matters a lot to me, of course, but it doesn't matter in terms of the divine office. It's a guaranteed deal. It's fantastic. That's one of the great things about this, okay? So it's official prayers of the church. It's so important that if we don't say it or try to skip it, okay, it's a mortal sin. 
That's pretty important, I'd say. You know, so, and that means, and we, there's eight different things we do a day. There's one that takes, you know, th- th- between 20 and, and 40 minutes, depending on the day. That's the earliest one. And then there's a whole series of other ones. And, and ideally, you break it up during the day where you're, you're, you're saying one before six in the morning, then between six and, and nine, then at nine, roughly nine, roughly 12, roughly three, roughly six, and roughly nine. That's how it breaks down. You're saying the divine office. Anyway. A lot of laymen also say divine office or parts of it or the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's great, too. Anyway, we start early in the day and then periodically throughout the day. We either say it alone or else we chant or sing it together. And if we sing, we sit on either side of the chapel. And one side or one guy does one line in the Psalms. The other guy does the next line. You go back and forth like that, okay? When we sing like that, that's called, uh, when we're sitting, that's called sitting in choir. Just like when the altar boys are up here, they're in choir. So, uh, that's what it'd be. So you'd sit like that and you sing the Psalms back and forth, okay? So the divine office, just to review, it's official sacrifice of praise. It's offered up by the church to God. It's a series of prayers, hymns, scriptural readings, readings from the church fathers, and especially the Psalms. The priests, brothers and nuns have the duty to offer up every day. And if they sing or chant the Psalms, they sit in choir, which means they sit on opposite sides of the chapel. On one side sings one line, and the other side sings the other line, and back and forth. Okay, now let's get back to the story about St. Clelia. She was canonized in 1989. Remember, she lay there dying. She prophesied to the sister, I'm leaving, but I'll never abandon you. I'm going to heaven, and all those who die in our community enjoy eternal life. And as we said, one year later to the very day, July 13, 1871, as the sisters in the little community were in the chapel singing the divine office, they're sitting in choir singing the divine office, a remarkable event occurred. Here's a summary of that taken from a book by Joan Carol Coos, and some of this is eyewitness quotes. Quote, suddenly there was the sound of a high-pitched, harmonious and heavenly voice that accompanied the singing in the choir. At times it sang solo. At other times, it harmonized with the choir, moving across from right to left. Sometimes it passed close by the ears of one or other of the sisters. The joy which it brought filled our hearts with a happiness impossible to put into words. This wasn't of this world. We lived that day in paradise. From time to time, one had to leave the room. The emotion we experienced was so strong that it left you breathless until one had to cry out, Enough, dear Lord, enough. The miraculous event dismissed all thoughts of their night's rest. Instead, they decided to pass the night adoring the Blessed Sacrament in a nearby church. They again declared, but how great was our surprise when we realized that the voice had followed us and accompanied us as we began our prayers. And Clelia's voice prayed with them until dawn. Close quote. That's marvelous enough. St. Clelia's religious order, the sister minims of the Sovereign Mothers, continuing her work, now has over 300 members and 30, some 35 houses throughout Italy, in India, and in Tanzania. And today, St. Clelia is still keeping her promise to never abandon her sisters. This marvelous event goes on still. She still prays with them. In Tanzania, when they're praying in Swahili, she prays and perfectly pronounced Swahili. In Italy... She prays in perfectly pronounced Italian. In India, she prays, and I'm going to mispronounce the name of the language, she prays in perfectly pronounced Malayalam. And when they're praying in Latin, she sings in Latin with them as well. Quote, The voice has been described as one unlike any of this earth. Always sweet and gentle, it is sometimes sad. Not only is it frequently accompanied by angelic strains, but is itself often transformed into the pure celestial music. 
The Mother Superior of the Order stated that this prodigious gift stimulates us to do well, increases our faith, is a relief to the trials of life, and gives us a great desire for heaven. Close quotes. So she'll just show up at one of her communities now and then from heaven and sing the divine office with them. And it's, it's a surprise to people when she does show up. Let's stop for a minute to consider something here, though. When does she typically show up? When her sisters are singing the praises of God. And what's the result? It stimulates them to do well. It increases their faith. It gives them relief during the trials of life and gives them a great desire for heaven. So what? Well, there's something here that we can all apply to our lives. Each one of us, not just guys like me who have to say the divine office on, but all of us here at Holy Mass. We all believe in the reality of the spiritual world. We all believe in heaven and hell and God and, and angels and saints and the poor souls and the devils, okay? But in this life, we see through a glass in a dark manner, as St. Paul puts it. So when God allows that veil to be lifted a little bit, we can get a glimpse inside, it's worth pondering. Okay, so what's the point? When St. Clelia shows up, her sisters are singing the divine office. That's the official prayer the official sacrifice of praise that's offered up every day by the church militant. The church militant, that's us, to God the Father. Her appearance should give each one of us a very powerful reminder of one of the most amazing realities in the way God has structured creation. It's something a lot of people don't realize. When we're engaged in the true worship of God, heaven and earth actually come together. The church militant is, at that particular point in space and time, in contact and in union and united in a very special way with the church triumphant. When we're engaged in the true worship of God, heaven and earth come together and kiss, as it were. When we're engaged in the true worship of God, heaven and earth are united at that point in time and space. St. Clelia's presence at divine office reminds us that even if we can't usually see the angels and saints, they're still here, and they're praying with us, and we're praying with them. So what the divine liturgy, by God's design, it actually mysteriously unites heaven with earth. And that union with heaven gives the liturgy this power it has to renew the earth. That's where the power comes. All the grace, light, truth comes from the fact that God has made in, so built liturgy that it will in, in, in touch and contact with the source of holiness itself and flow out from that, okay? When we think about that, then we ought to think about the incredible dignity to which we've been raised. This opportunity, this unbelievable opportunity each one of us has to tap into that spiritual power and be overwhelmed with grace and beauty and light and truth. The sacred scriptures are explicit about this. For example, in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, St. Paul speaks of these very things. I'll read it and then I'll make some comments. So here's St. Paul, quote, You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and into innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all. And to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. 
Let's take a minute to go through parts of that. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. How do we get to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem? By coming here to the church. There's the living God. He's right there. He's alive. We're here reporting into him. And during the official worship, there's floodgates of grace are opened up, okay? During the Holy Mass, heaven and earth are suddenly, mysteriously united. Continues, you're in the company of innumerable angels in festal gathering. During Mass, they're here. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? Who are the firstborn enrolled in heaven? According to that great medieval commentator, Cornelius Elapidae, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are the apostles and the first martyrs. During Mass, they're here. We go through lists of them in the canon. There's a list of them before the, the consecration, a list of them after the consecration. You're in the presence of the spirits of just men made perfect. Who are the just men made perfect? According to Cornelius Elapidae, these are the other saints in heaven. Like St. Clelia. And during Mass, they're here. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant. He's right there. And of course, and during Mass, he'll be coming here. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Remember that after Cain murdered Abel, God the Father said that Abel's blood was crying out to him for vengeance. That's why it's one of the, murdering the innocent is one of the four sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. We're not going to get away with it. This is parenthetical. That's what, when the Holy Father came over and said abortion is the test of our survival as a nation, he meant abortion is the test of our survival as a nation because that's innocent blood and it's being shed and that blood cries out to heaven for vengeance. That's how it works. So the sprinkle of blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, what does that mean? So Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance, but Christ's precious blood cries out to God for mercy. And in just a few minutes, we'll be offering up that very blood begging for God's mercy. Okay. Why are we going through all this? Because the deeper the appreciation we have for liturgy, the more profound thanks we'll have to Christ our Lord for loving us so much that he became man, born in a stable, and then died on a cross. Huh? That's more than reason enough right there. But beyond all that, just what was true with St. Clelia's sisters is true with us also. The liturgy has an intrinsic power to stimulate each one of us to do well. An intrinsic power to increase our faith. An intrinsic power to give us relief during the trials of life. An intrinsic power to give us a great desire for heaven. Let's be concrete. Our goal, our goal as priests, is to do whatever it takes to get each one of you here to become a saint. That can't be done without the liturgy. Everything starts here. Everything starts here. The situation in the world is a liturgical problem. The situation in our country is a liturgical problem. Everything starts here. Now, in all that, too, of course, what we're trying to do is encourage you, push, pull, drag, kick you, do whatever it takes to move you up into the next level in the spiritual life. One of the things, it is just being in the state of grace. What does that mean to move you to the next level in the spiritual life? Being in the state of grace is sufficient to be saved. That's great. We want everybody there. But that's the minimum. There, the spiritual life has three levels in this life. There are three levels of the spiritual life. When we're spiritually alive, that means we're in the state of grace. If we're not in the state of grace, 
Get back there. You're not doing yourself any good, okay? It doesn't do you any good. You're spiritually dead. But if you're spiritually alive, when we're in the state of grace, there are three levels to the spiritual life, okay? The three levels. The first level is called the purgative way. The second level is called the illuminative way. And the third level is called the unitive way. I'll talk mostly on the purgative way right now and just make a couple of remarks on the illuminative way. Okay, we start our spiritual life in the purgative way, okay? Think of it like being a little baby in a rocker or just a little toddler. That's the purgative way because this is another kind of life. It's supernatural life, okay? So in the spiritual life, when we're in the purgative way, we're like little babies or little toddlers learning to walk and so forth, okay? We start in the purgative way, and at this stage of the spiritual life, we have to do a lot of work. It's uh, We've got to struggle to get rid of sins. We've got to battle our vices. We've got to grow in virtue, and especially we want to work on, vir- on the virtue of charity, Charity, not just in what we do, but in what we think and say, too. Okay, we're striving to get to a level of the purgative life, which is called the level of fervor. We want to be fervent. That's the upper or more mature level of the purgative way. When we're truly fervent by the grace of God, we'd rather die. Now, it doesn't mean a feeling, but it means an act of will. We'd rather die than deliberately offend God with even the smallest sin. That means we'd rather die than deliberately commit even the smallest venial sin. Does it mean we don't commit venial sins? No. It means they're semi-deliberate. You're caught off guard or something. Someone asks you an embarrassing question before, you don't really think about it, and you, you, you tell a little white line, go, what, what did I do? Or you say, some, you, you say something that isn't very charitable or think something that isn't charitable before you cut it. In other words, we can't get rid of the semi-deliberate ones. We're not the Blessed Virgin Mary, okay? But the deliberate venial sins, when we're fervent, we'd rather die than offend God in that way. We love God so much, we'd rather die than deliberately offend him, even in a small matter. We don't want to just stomp on his toes just because he won't send us to heaven. Bam, you know, I'm not going to stomp on him tail. Bam, I stomp on your toes, but that's all right because I can just use some holy water and get over and make an act of contrition. No, when we're fervent, we don't want to do that. Okay, now, one of the main reasons we're trying to urge everybody to go to confession so often is this is one of the key ways to move up. Remember, confession not only forgives us sins, it gives us power to not fall no sins, and it also gives us more grace. So the confession and communion are the two rungs of this ladder to climb up in the spiritual life, okay? That's one of the reasons we're exhorting you so often to do that, okay? At this stage also, we have to talk about mental prayer. Mental prayer is a struggle. It's somewhat of a battle at that. Mental prayer, what does that mean? When we take time out of our day to really try to thoughtfully say the rosary and think about what we're saying, or we spend 15 minutes, you know, a day, trying to have a heart-to-heart talk, in other words, using our own words with God, telling him we love him and talking to him about the issues that we've got going in our life, okay? Anyway, in the purgative life, mental prayer takes work on our part. At this stage, it can be compared to teaching a little kid to walk. The little kid is having a hard time. He has to work, okay? Um, It takes some effort. Parenthetical remark there. By the way, mothers, teach your little kids to make mental prayer. If they can sit there and talk to make-believe friends and all that, they're old enough to talk to God, and he's not make-believe. If you get them started young, they don't have to be where most adults are. You get them started young, that's how you get saints. Mental prayers for everybody, okay? As soon as they're, they, they can start having a conversation, you have them have a conversation with, with Jesus or with Mary. It's great, you know? Give them a nice picture of the sacred heart, a crucifix, whatever they like, and have them talk to them, huh? That's how you get them going. They should be starting on this, okay? Obviously, they're not going to spend 15 minutes. You know, you're not going to kneel down and do 15 minutes. That would be ridiculous. Okay. Anyway, young kids, I just want to speak to you quickly. You 
Every day you should spend a couple minutes talking to Jesus. I'm talking to the young people, so I want you to listen up. Every day you should spend a couple minutes talking to Jesus. Tell him you love him. Tell him you want to become a saint. Ask him to show you how to become a saint. That's important. That's what he put you here in the world to do, so ask him to help you to do that. Okay, anyway, at this stage, the purgative way, we're all rookies when we're in the purgative way. At this stage, for mental prayer to be fruitful, not some sort of a daydream, in order for mental prayer to be a truly a heart-to-heart talk with God, in which we express our love and desires, the soul first has to be filled with intellectual principles and knowledge of our faith, okay? This is where spiritual reading, sermons, good tapes or videos or books come in. That, that helps feed that so that we have something to talk to God about. If we put our heart into these things, we'll become fervent. And then God will reach down at the level of fervor, and, and he'll pull a person up. Then it becomes God. We do all this effort. And I'll get to how, how long that might take. And say, we do this effort, and then God reaches in and starts pulling a person up into the next level, the illuminative way. He gets so pleased with our efforts, we've struggled, and it's a battle. It's a battle. Thanks, Adam, but it's a battle. But then he, he reaches down, and he starts taking charge of our prayer and our life. Our prayer starts to change. It's slow at first, but God starts to give us infused prayer, the prayer of contemplation. God starts illuminating our minds with his spiritual truths, okay? Another day we can talk more about it and then take a look at the unitive way as well, but we don't worry about that. The point for today is we're doing everything we can to move everybody here up to the luminative way. We don't want the purgative way. That's what purgatory is about is get rid of all that stuff. We don't want you to go to purgatory. We're trying to produce saints so that when you die, you go straight to heaven. You can get it done now. Do it now. <laughs> Nobody wants to go to, if you want to go to purgatory, read a good book on purgatory, then come and talk to me, okay? Nobody wants to go to purgatory. That's plan B. You didn't flunk, but you didn't quite pass. It's like summer school. We want you to go straight there, okay? Get it done now. That's the purgative life. Okay. Now, if we keep plugging away faithfully, we can be confident that God will lift us up there. It's his will that everyone reaches contemplative prayer. And that's something we can't do. It's not some sort of Eastern mysticism where you sit there and put a big brain eraser on and sit around and think about your navel. This is something where God reaches in and starts pouring down his light into us, okay? It's something fantastic. Anyway, two other points we need to keep in mind. First, don't get discouraged if we're hammering away and we don't seem to make much change or progress, okay? The spiritual life is absolutely, positively nothing like the drive through at Burger King. You don't get to pull up, make your order, pull around, grab it out the window and go. And we don't get it our way. It's God's way, and he will do it in his own good time. We've got to be confident in that. That keeps us humble. So it isn't just like you sit down and say, all right, this week I'm here, six months from now I'm going to be there. It doesn't work like that. And it also doesn't matter what you think your progress is. That's why a regular confession, with a, you know, and you don't have to go to the same confessor all the time, but you get in the habit, and he'll, he'll direct you. You start find out where am I and where am I going in my interior life. That's what you want to do, because that's one of the graces that a faithful confessor gets to be able to help you. Okay, so first point is we have to keep at it. Don't get discouraged if we don't see instant or rapid improvement. Second point, it's related to that one. In our natural life, we keep maturing right from the moment of our conception through our birth, infancy, toddler, childhood, adolescence, adult, right on up to death, okay? We never stop at a particular age in our natural life. Well, I haven't met a lot of women that seem to be 29, but other than that... Uh, in the spiritual life, which is a real form of life, a higher form of life than our natural life, we can stop maturing. And if we stop going up, that means we start going down. You don't hover. In the spiritual life, you're either going up or you're going down, okay? As far as we can tell from the outside, 
And it's just an outside comment. A lot, nowadays, a lot of people are born at baptism, spiritually alive. And then sometime in their life, they commit spiritual suicide. And then they die in that condition. It doesn't look good. This is just from the outside. We leave it to the good God. But it doesn't look good from the outside the way people are doing. We don't want to do the spiritual suicide, okay? In the spiritual life, we have to keep plugging away or we backslide. Keep plugging away your slide backwards. And don't worry. God, God knows what we're doing. And he'll reward the effort. He'll reward the effort. Two points. Don't get discouraged if we don't see rapid improvement. Keep plugging away or we'll slide back. Okay, so... Our goal as priests is to do whatever it takes to get each one of you to become saints, and it can't be done without the liturgy. Everything starts here. Sacred Scripture commands us to offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The acceptable worship department belongs to the priests. We try hard to be obedient to the rubrics, and of course this beautiful traditional Mass is certainly acceptable worship. Where does reverence and awe plug in? That's something that all of us collectively are responsible for. I'll take a minute to discuss one easy way for everyone here to make progress right here at Mass. And this will be real spiritual progress in in theme with St. Clelia. Now, keep in mind that when we're engaged in the true worship of God, heaven and earth actually come together. The church militant at a particular time and, and space right there are united in a special way with the church triumphant. Now, keeping all that in mind, let's start asking ourselves a simple question. What are the angels and saints doing in heaven right now? What are they doing right now? That's not a dumb question. What are the angels and saints doing right now? The Word of God tells us two times. Once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, God lifted the veil slightly and let a man not only to see and hear what's going on in heaven, but also to describe to us his vision. He didn't let St. Paul tell us. St. Paul wasn't allowed to tell us what he saw. But there were two men. In the Old Testament, the man who saw heaven open before his eyes was the prophet Isaiah. He describes his vision in the sixth chapter of his book. In the New Testament, the man who saw into heaven was the apostle St. John, who describes his vision in the fourth chapter of his apocalypse. What do they see? In both cases, they saw a similar thing. Hold that thought, because it has to do with this intersection between heaven and earth at Holy Mass. In both cases, they saw God enthroned in his unspeakable glory. And he's surrounded by angels worshiping them and crying out and praising the holiness of God. They're not praising his mercy. They're not praising his justice. They're not praising all this. They're praising his holiness. Utter, unspeakable holiness. Here's a description of the prophet Isaiah. It's right here from the, the God's sacred word. Quote, And the seraphim cried out to one to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, all the earth is full of his glory. And the lintels of the doors of the temple were moved at the voice of them that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Close quote. That should sound familiar. What are they doing in heaven? They're singing out and praising the holiness of God. We could go for an hour here. I won't do that to you. There's a lot of detail. It ought to sound familiar. The house is filled with smoke. Their songs of praise are shaking the heavenly temple. And the hymn which they're praising God goes like this in Latin. And I'll use an old-fashioned word for host. It says, it goes, Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabot, Pleni est omnes terra gloria eus. Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory. 
my friends, at Holy Mass, here in this true worship of God, when we sing the Sanctus, we're actually singing with the angels. That's the dignity we've been getting. Think about that. Here we are. We're proud dust. They've never rebelled. They didn't sin at all. The angels are perfect. And we're allowed to join in with the heavenly host and praise God, united with them. It's an unbelievable opportunity. I don't care how bad a singer you are. As long as you're not in the choir, it matters. But the rest of it, it doesn't matter. We need to join in with that. Take a minute to think about how important that is in heaven and to see how important it is here on earth. How important is this hymn of praise in heaven? Consider what happened to the angels that wouldn't sing it. Where are they? And God rewarded the angels that did sing and were allowed to join in their heavenly victory cry. Okay? Not only that, Pope Sixtus I, he was Pope from about 117 to 126, ordered that when the priest begins a canon of the Mass, the congregation should sing a hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of Sabaoth. That goes back a ways. St. Gregory of Tours points out all the people should readily and eagerly cry out the Sanctus in the praise of God. We should be shaking the doorposts here. If we enter into the heavenly music, the heavenly music will enter into us. That's the truth. Whatever kind of music we enter into will enter into us. If you enter in heavy metal music, it will enter into you. If you enter in heavenly music, it will enter into you. Think about it. The Sanctus is right out of Holy Scripture. The first half of the Sanctus were joined with the angels and given glory to the most holy trinity. The second half of the Sanctus, the angels are joining with us. And what are we doing? We're expressing our joy that our Savior is about to appear there on the altar. And we're welcoming him with the very same words by which he was greeted as he made his way into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Let's close. The deeper the appreciation we have for liturgy, the more profound thanks we'll have to Christ our Lord for loving us so much that he became man, was born in a stable, and died for us on the cross. Beyond that, the liturgy has an intrinsic power to stimulate each one of us to do well, to increase our faith, to give us relief during the trials of life, to give us a great desire for heaven. Let us keep these spiritualities before our mind's eye. Whenever we come to Holy Mass, let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe whenever we have that great opportunity to be present at the official worship of Holy Mother of the Church.